Welcome to the Whose Body Is It podcast. I'm your host, Isabella Melvin. In this second installment of our vaccine expose with Robbie Rose, she and I go all in on the hidden ties between autism, gender dysphoria, and childhood vaccines. Robbie detangles topics like the MRC5 cell line being injected into children, what so-called genetic susceptibility to autism has to do with low vaccination rates in Silicon Valley, the trans shooter of the 2017 Highlands Ranch school shooting, and the role of epigenetics in producing medically fragile children. Robbie describes finding compassion towards male trans-identified athletes after her years of research and legal practice, and shares about the spiritual side of being a mother to a vaccine-injured boy. It's not conspiracy about what's in the vaccines. You can look it up. It's called the CDC vaccine excipient list. And you can also use the Wayback Machine to go back in time and see how this has changed, or at least see how their reporting has changed. And in October 2019, the CDC announced that they were changing what they reported on the vaccine excipient list, and that they were only including the ingredients that were detectable in the final product. So prior to that, there were vaccines that had the WI38 cell line, which was a Caucasian female, and the MRC5 line, which was a baby boy. So both of those were in several of the vaccines prior to October, 2019. And then the CDC said, we're only putting in what's detectable at the final product rather than everything that went into the manufacturing. Like, okay, what did they do about the aborted fetal cells. And I went and looked and they had removed one, but they kept the other. And so the statement that they are making, if you look at what they're really saying, is that there is detectable MRC5, which is the baby boy DNA in our vaccines today, in the final product that are injected into infant children. That's shocking to me that that's not headline news, right? Especially when you are in the middle of a gender dysphoric epidemic, shouldn't we be asking questions about what is the impact of injecting opposite sex DNA detectable and whole genome at that? Um, It's the whole genome, but it's little tiny fragments of it, but it can all be lined up to create the genome of this dead child. (laughs) That's mind boggling. And if it was just the whole, like, let's say intact DNA strands, that would be far less worrisome than these tiny little DNA fragments. What is the impact of fragments? And you know, think about gene therapy and think about gene splicing and these, you know, teeny, 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 tiny fragments that are used. And what is the impact of injecting these fragments from this dead baby? 
The answer is we don't know because no one is ever going to research that. No one is ever going to stick their neck out and do it. And no one is certainly ever going to get NIH funding for anything, number one, transgender, but number two, that would ever derail public confidence in the vaccine program. So you would have to be a privately funded lab if this work mm-hmm. is ever is ever going to get done. The, the, the number of people who would need to be canceled to even look into this, it would never happen. And I think a great example of this is when Dr. Lisa uh, Littman at Brown University did the social contagion theory where she looked at what was happening amongst female adolescent girls and why so many female adolescents were identifying as trans, as the opposite sex. Brown University went on to cover quote unquote, gender reassignment surgeries. So it became part of the healthcare that they offer students. Academia is owned by pharma at this right. point. So they're subsidizing education. They are subsidizing textbooks. They, pharma gets to send in adjunct professors all the time to teach on you know their favorite topics, whatever they want to teach on. And um the universities come to depend on this money. A lot of time the money is coming in, like maybe it's not earmarked, maybe you don't know where it's going. And you just know that uh, the university is heavily dependent on it. And at this point, I mean, I don't know how I feel about sending my children to a college that accepts pharmaceutical money because they will be indoctrinated. You're not free to talk about what you wanna talk about. I mean, wasn't that the purpose of tenure, right? So that professors have the freedom to delve into unpopular topics and do research into this. And now we've got cancel culture. And so they just have to be really mindful. But um, yeah, at the NIH, which is where almost all grant money comes from, you have to play the game. So it's publish or perish. You know, I'm sure that you've heard this saying before as 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 a professor, as a researcher, no matter what, field you're in, it's publish or perish, and you don't get the money to do the research in order to publish unless it's something that the NIH likes. And so you can't go against the NIH agenda. And so it's just impossible to take a counterpoint, to go into an unpopular subject, to go into cancel culture and expect the NIH to write you a grant for it. Those days are over. That's that's probably never coming back. You may as well use GoFundMe, I guess. Wow. Research. Yeah. So back to this blog piece that I wrote about. So what the CDC did is they they removed the WI 38 line from their final product, but they kept in this MRC5. And MRC5 is the baby boy DNA. And I want to say I'm looking at my blog piece. Okay, so the the baby girl one that was removed was historically in the MMR, the MMRV, which is the MMR and the chickenpox vaccine and the chickenpox vaccine separately. Whereas the MRC5 baby boy that is still in the final product is in the inactivated polio vaccine that the US has used since the mid 1990s, GlaxoSmithKline's brand of hepatitis A, Merck's chickenpox vaccine, the DTaP polio vaccine, the DTaP polio HIV vaccine, hepatitis A, the hepatitis AB combo, the MMR chickenpox combo, and the chickenpox vaccine. That's a lot of vaccines that use baby boy DNA. <laughs> That's wow. a lot of vaccines. And um, 
it's not the same throughout. So in some of the vaccines where the US was using the female DNA, the UK was using a different brand and they were using the male DNA all along because the transgender um, issue in the United States is not the same as it is in the UK. And we can't look at everything like they're the same. People are not the same. We don't live the same, but they're also not vaccinated the same. So I wanna say it was 2018 or 2019, this Italian research group that is privately funded, their name is Corvella. They came out and said that they did analyze, it was a vaccine that is not here in the United States. It's the GSK MMRV. So that's GlaxoSmithKline, measles, mumps, rubella, chicken pox, combo shot. So here in the US, Merck has the whole market for that. They just like went into an agreement that there was not going to be any competition for it. All over the world, they use GlaxoSmithKline. So Corvella took a vaccine and they tried to take it apart and see what all of these separate parts are. And what was most shocking is they, they found an entire human genome within GlaxoSmithKline's MMRV, and it matched 99.76% of the DNA from this aborted child, MRC5. That's crazy that that's in there. That's insane. I didn't, so I, I, for, as long as I've been researching vaccines, I've heard there are aborted fetal cells. Can you explain why that would even be beneficial? Like, because it's not a preservative, right? Like what is the function? Why is it desirable for the vaccine manufacturers to have aborted fetal cells other than let's say, if we believe that there's an agenda on the part of the vaccine manufacturers to create like a sexless society or confuse sex society. Like even aside from that, what would be the function of having aborted fetal cells or is that it? So, no, I don't think it is it just because this has been going on for so long. Like we are at this point, three generations deep. I don't think that that was the plan way back then. I think that the plan from way back then had a lot of consequences that didn't show up for a couple of decades. And it didn't show up until number one, a whole generation was captured with what they were doing. And number two, there's a lot of piling on going on, right? It could be an environmental, it could be glyphosate, it could be Tylenol. There's a lot of things going on at once. It's never one thing. And that's always been the out for these people pushing vaccines is that they will study one thing. And then they will say, well, it's not mercury or, well, it's not the MMR or whatever, but guess what? What if it's all of the mercury and the lead and um, everything else that is in children's bodies combined with the glyphosate combined with the glutathione depleting painkillers that we're giving babies for in fevers and, and all, you know, it's never the one thing. And so it's not fair to parents to say that we have exonerated the MMR and that we've exonerated mercury because children get a whole lot more than the MMR and the mercury. And especially when the aluminum, which has never been studied for safety, not, not once has injected aluminum been studied for safety. It just like was given a free ride. So it is a combination of a whole lot of things. To answer your question, the reason why they use aborted DNA is to grow the virus. And it's not one aborted baby that they were like, yeah, we'll go ahead and take that one. There's dozens and dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of aborted children that they took the tissue from and they attempted to grow the viruses in. 
but it can only be an internal cell line, honestly, from my understanding, if there's something wrong with it, if there's something almost cancerous about it that allows you to replicate and replicate and replicate and replicate. That is highly unusual that researchers land on a line like that. Like those, the, the, the HELOC cells, right, from Henrietta Lacks, those were cancer cells. Right. And they use them forever. It's an eternal line. Like we should be really worried because that is not how the human body functions. We are not forever. We cannot replicate forever. And yet they landed on these unusual lines. And so they use it to grow, for instance, rubella virus. Mm. And you have to grow the virus in something. If you're not growing it in a human being cell line, then you're growing it in monkey kidneys, or you're growing it in brain tissue, you're growing it in chicken eggs, like you're right. growing it in something that is revolting and disgusting and toxic. If you're going to grow it, I mean, that's the only way to grow these things. So right. they have no other options at this point. Science is not what people think it is. It's very rudimentary, like it's very archaic still mm. how they create these vaccines. And so they can only create them in this like really disgusting way and they have to have something to grow them in. Wow. Okay. That, thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. I remember I learned about how the flu shot was developed. Like, I, like chicken eggs were like ruined for me for like a couple months. And yes. yes. Well, and now eat, they've moved I over eggs to now, but... the cocker spaniel, I think liver or kidney, kidney, I think dog kidney, dog kidney, the new ones from like the last, I don't know, five to eight years. Yes. Our cocker spaniel cell lines, they hit on some sort of eternal mutant line that they can profit off of. And so now, yeah, there's a children's flu vaccine that is made with dog cells. Wow. And again, just to reiterate, like these ingredients that you're saying are like this information when you were referring to the undetectable ingredients, you were referring to the MRC5, the baby boy DNA. But when we're talking about the harvesting and the aborted fetal cells, and that is all detectable, correct? It is detectable. And they would have told you it's not detectable. But with this move in October 2019, where they say from now on, we're only including on the vaccine excipient list things that are in the final product. And you look and MRC5 is still on there. That is how we know mm. that the human aborted DNA is still detectable because otherwise, since October 2019, the CDC is not going to be printing it. So this is just very interesting to me that this is male DNA going into females. And when you look at the UK, and, and I'm not by any means saying that this is the sole issue with gender dysphoria. Who am I to claim that? I'm not an expert. I'm just saying that the chemicals in our environment, in combination with injecting opposite sex DNA, in combination with the aluminum that is doing all kinds of brain damage and nerve damage and hormonal damage and intestinal damage and all of these things going on at once, I find it very hard to believe that vaccines don't play a role. Granted, I do know one completely unvaccinated child who has gender dysphoria, and, but she's a small child and things may change for her. I don't know. Her mom, right. is, not, her mom is not feeding into you know, anything that a lot of parents do. And, and she's just sort of going along with it and supporting her. But 
this is an unvaccinated child, just like I know two unvaccinated children with peanut allergies. But I will tell you that 99.99% of food allergies is going to come from vaccines and it's going to be specifically from the aluminum because that's what aluminum does. It elicits this enormous immune system response. And that's why vaccines work so great when they contain aluminum. You can't inject someone with a DPT or a DTAP vaccine that doesn't contain aluminum. The body's just gonna metabolize it and get rid of it. And so you have to have the aluminum to have this huge response. It does not make sense to say that you can inject aluminum into the human body to get this huge immune response and that it's not going to impact any bystander proteins. And especially if you're a sickly child, you have a leaky gut, you've got food proteins that are undigested going out into the bloodstream, and now you're encountering injected aluminum. Why would anyone think the aluminum is like only selective to the antigens to the vaccine and it's not gonna do anything with the peanut or uh, the casein or you know what other proteins it runs into. So I think that it is multifactorial. However, so this got me looking and you asked about this study and I did find the study that I had come across. And so this was a 1997 study, I think, let me see here. So you and I talked about last time about how in my reading that I discovered that the root, I think, time, point in time of the autism epidemic is rooted in the same point in time as the transgender epidemic, which is on or about children born in 1984. But with the autistic children, the parents were noticing by 1987. But with the gender dysphoric children, parents are not noticing, number one, right? There's no environment in the 1980s for a child to speak out and say, hey, I'm trapped in the wrong body. There's no celebrity support, no media support, no medical support, right? So you're not hearing this from five-year-olds. And of course, even if there are five-year-olds, it's not gonna be in the media. People aren't talking about it. There's no support for this. But a lot of those children, you start hearing about as they are entering like college age or whatever, and they're really struggling inside because they feel that they're trapped in the wrong body. And so when I started doing the math on how old these people were, it was tracing back again to the same generation of children born on or around 1984. And so the earliest case I found, so it used to be all the time that researchers would do case studies, which were just amazing. The case study is basically dead now because no one's going to pay for it. They don't want to hear about it. The case study is the way for a single researcher or a single medical doctor to say, Hey, SOS, I saw this thing in my practice, or I saw it not just once I saw it twice, or I saw it three times. And I made a little tiny case study and then you publish it. And then other doctors can find it in their research when they encounter the same thing, when enough case studies come together, that becomes the basis for writing to ask for a grant from the NIH to study something, right? Case studies are dead now. And I guarantee you they're dead because of vaccine injury. Nobody wants to talk about this stuff. However, this was a 1997 journal. It's European Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. And this was from Sweden. And the case report says the subject, a 14 year old girl in the third child out of four healthy parents of Pakistani origin, her older sister suffers from dyslexia, which is, there's definitely a mental issue happening with dyslexia. 
The father had a sister who was mentally retarded and without speech who died at the age of 14. So that tells you that there's probably some susceptibility in the family. Mm-hmm. This is, this is something that always gets on my nerves when people say, no, 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 that ADHD just runs in my family. I'm like, no, genetic susceptibility runs in your family. I mean, there's the bullet in the chamber and there's the trigger and something's pulling the trigger that your family should probably be avoiding instead of following the herd off the end of the cliff. She was described as walking high on tiptoe. Okay. So we know that for sensory reasons and for balance, right. That these autistic children walk on tiptoe, like very frequently, right? Not hundred percent of the time, but they walk on tiptoe a lot. According to the mother's report, the pregnancy was normal, no medication, uneventful birth, high APGAR scores, blah, blah, blah. So this is the earliest that I had seen. And this was received in December, 1996. And she was a 14 year old girl, which means that she was born in 1982. So this is tracing back. And this is a case study. So this is one of the first times probably that researchers are seeing this. And the abstract says a girl with high functioning autism, right? That's not autism. That's not classic autism. That's Asperger's. That's a different brain injury. It's the opposite side of the brain from autism. A girl with high functioning autism who developed transsexualism is is described. The literature to date has, to the author's knowledge, not documented any similar case. I assume this person did a lot more research than I did, and they found nothing. This 1982 child who has high-functioning autism and gender dysphoria is the first one they found. Wow. So that's just fascinating to me that we know that there is super high overlap between gender dysphoria and Asperger's, but it's referred to as high-functioning autism, right? We already know that there's a super high overlap with that. And so to go back to the very first case that anyone found in the literature and have it be that exact combination and to go back to that same period in time is just fascinating to me. And to me, it says these are epidemics that were launched at the same time. And the autism epidemic came so high so quickly because you notice that your baby is autistic, right? But when it's gender dysphoria, they're going to be a teen or they're going to be into their 20s or mid 20s or whatever before they finally speak up. So I just think it's fascinating. I think there needs to be research. People need to be talking about this because if we know that one is vaccine injury, which is a hill to die on, uh, there, there's no classic autism. <laughs> there's just not. People yeah. who have um, Asperger's very frequently go on to have classically autistic children, right? This is a phenomenon in Silicon Valley. It's why their vaccination rates were so low because these men who typically, let's be honest, would not have gotten married. They would not have uh, met women at all, but for number one, online dating, and number two, the Silicon Valley boom that took people who have Asperger's, who are very good at coding, very good at doing right what we would consider to be boring, monotonous work, and to do it 10, 12 hours a day, because that's what they're really good at, and that's where they thrive, right? So now these men who are at these startups and they get stocks award and all this, and then they become rich. And then there's online dating that in my world happened in like 2004 or something like that. And so now you've got men who ordinarily wouldn't have a lot of money. They would have no social life. They would have no wife and children, but for online dating and the money now from Silicon Valley. And now they vaccinate on schedule and they have a severely injured first child. And then that's it. They're not doing it again to another child. You know, these moms see it happen. They're not doing it again. So that was a super 
quiet issue in Silicon Valley is the anti-vax problem from years before I got involved, like in the early 2000s, they stopped vaccinating. So these nurseries at Google had very low vaccination rates and everybody was on an exemption. And then when they started forcing people to vaccinate because they took away the exemption and let's say, you know, 2014 legislation in 2015, they just started pulling those kids out. So now they have like 100% vaccination rates, but yeah, how many children did you lose? Because they just pulled them out. And so there is a susceptibility, there is a fragility to the Asperger brain. And when you mate and that offspring is then bombarded with the vaccines that, you know, are three times more than what this person received, you know, than what the dad received, then they have this classically autistic child. So in my mind, there's no, there's no debate about what vaccines are doing to our children. So to, for anyone who didn't get that, it's, it's, Wow. I'm first of all, just like blown away, but like, just to summarize what you're saying and correct me if I'm wrong, men who have Asperger's who then go on to procreate their children, if vaccinated, have an increased likelihood of developing autism. Oh yeah. Okay. That's really interesting because. And they they say, no, it just runs in our family. No. It doesn't because try right. not vaccinating your next child. Right. So the, right. So in this case, so you're saying, I think it's a really important point that the vaccine is the trigger, right? So like there's this environment that, you know, if left untouched, like would remain unchanged or stagnant. Like we are, you know, that's our, our genetic predisposition. Um, like it, similar, you know, you could say the same thing for, um, genetic markers like dementia, you know, like I've been told that I'm in a mid range of risk for dementia, but my lifestyle support so supportive that the likelihood of me getting dementia is so low. Right. But if you're at a kind of, uh, an intermediate marker or a high marker, and on top of that, you're um, getting boosters and you have a poor lifestyle and you're isolated and you don't get vitamin D and whatever your, your risk is higher. So it's not necessarily like, is it genetic or is it, is it vaccines? Right. So this is the nuance that, that you're describing here. Um, oh, I have a very dear friend who I met when I was six months pregnant with my first child and she was seven months pregnant with her first child. when, uh, And we became very good friends because we're both super tall and to run into like a super tall blonde, who's really pregnant. You're like, I'm a super tall blonde. Who's really pregnant. Like we just became friends and we were both very normal mainstream people. And I went on to have a child who reacted terribly at two months and he developed 12 allergies, two of them deadly. She went on to have a child who became autistic. And once they started running all of the tests, on this child, they said, no, 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 he has a genetic condition. And I don't want to say it wrong, but I think it's called Q dupe Q two or two dupe Q something like that. And it's a duplicated gene. And they're saying that this leads to autistic regression. This leads to seizures. He's probably going to die early, you know, all this terrifying stuff. So she'd already had a second baby before they really looked into what was happening with their firstborn child. So second baby was partially vaccinated. First baby was fully vaccinated for the first two years. So she tests the second baby. Second baby has the same gene, but he's not fully autistic. He'd only gotten a few vaccines 
and he actually has Asperger's, which is not better. It's not better. It's a whole different problem. She worries about his lack of empathy. She worries about like sociopathy. She worries about a lot of stuff that this kid does, which is just different than her nonverbal child who is like super uh, empathy. I mean, they're just very different kids. She had another boy, a third boy, no vaccines for this kid, had him tested. He has the same gene. He's completely normal. She had a fourth boy. She had a fifth boy. Every one of them has the same gene. The fully vaccinated child is classically autistic. The partially vaccinated child has Asperger's and everyone else is a completely normal, totally normal little boy. It's her own like in-house, like that itself should be a case study in the literature. And it's not. Wow. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And I, and I feel like that, like the, in the vaxxed two film the they just went around the country interviewing moms and there were so many moms with multiple kids whose first kid was injured. The second kid has never even been inside a doctor's office. Who's just like the happiest, healthiest. That was the best part of the movie was the end. Like I could watch hours of parents saying that. So, you know, my son was super highly reactive to everything. And we did a skin prick test, which I don't necessarily recommend, but when they're little, it's, it's the most accurate way to know. He was 16 months old. We did the skin prick test. The doctor said he has never seen a child react the way my child reacted. I have the photograph still his whole back lit up. So for the skin prick test, they go in with little tiny needles and then they put substances in, right? They can put seasonal allergen pollen in, they can put foods, they can put, um, dander pets, you know, cats, dogs, whatever. His whole back was lit up with 12 and then peanut and walnut were just enormous. And so when I had my second child and she's not been vaccinated, I had my husband take her in and have her tested when she was like, I don't know, 19, 20 months, something like that. Not one hive. Like, tell me my children aren't genetically related, right? If his allergic disposition was that strong genetically, why does my daughter have nothing? If she sneezes, if that kid sneezes, I swear, I'm just like, (gasps) what's wrong? Why are you sneezing? Because she doesn't react to anything. She never has a runny nose for no reason. If she sneezes because she's getting a cold. So yeah, it's fascinating to talk to the moms who woke up in between child one and two or child two and three. Yeah. And they're everywhere. It's, it's so interesting talking to you about the, the, to go back to the yeah intersection of, of transgenderism and vaccines, because I've exclusively in my own research and on this channel been talking about the social elements. So talking about, you know, uh, like uh, internalized homophobia and sexism and, you know, trauma response and things like that, which again, we're not saying it's one or the other. It's, it's multifactorial as, as you stated. This stuff is in our bodies. There's no such thing as an, um, an aluminum free child anymore. That does not exist. And aluminum passes through the womb from the mother to the baby. And so these babies are being born with this aluminum damage, right? And so aluminum has been injected into human beings since the 1930s, but only mm-hmm. rich people, right? You've heard about these rich people from the 30s and 40s who had like the crazy children that had to be put away into these homes where they're just taken out of sight for their entire lives, right? Those mm-hmm. are the ones getting mercury treatment, which is mercury poisoning, but it was viewed as medicine, or they're the ones getting 
the crate, the schedule for the DPT vaccine used to be insane. I don't remember how many it was, but it wouldn't have been unusual for a baby to get like 10 doses of it in the first couple years of their life, because it was like, doctors were just trying to figure out what worked, right? Like they're just trying to keep diphtheria and um, not so much tetanus, but definitely whooping cough, the pertussis portion of it, trying to keep these diseases under control. And so there were some insane vaccine schedules, but they weren't free until 1962 under President Kennedy. He's the one who created this vaccine for, you know, I don't know if it's the Vaccines for Children program or if it's a different program, but 1962 was the beginning of everybody getting vaccinated. And even then, not everybody, it didn't happen right. all at once. Like even in the eighties, the vaccination rate for children who were not yet school age, but they were only going to preschool was very low. I mean, it might've been like 50, 50, it was very low. So it's this slow upgrade, but I wrote a great article about this one time too, this, this epigenetic damage. And so if you're mm. getting even 1% epigenetic damage. And I mean, just even talking about vaccines, not even talking about the toxic exposures in the environment in the insane medicine that people used to take. Um, because I mean, there's medicines that women took, right. That went into their bodies and passed on to their females and got into the eggs. Like they're literally poisoning their grandchildren with the medicines that they're taking today. Right. And that's playing out for generations. Mm. And, generations. and so, um, <laughs> that's actually a piece that I used once to get a job for Jeffrey Smith, one of the very first anti-GMO activists to explain epigenetics. Cause I used to be a scientist before I went to law school and he's just like, I've never felt like someone held my hand so closely while taking me through this really complicated subject matter. And so I'm just telling people, you don't have bad genes. You don't, it's all expression. It's about whether or not you're able, your body is able to like tightly wind down and clamp down these so-called bad genes, or if your diet and exposures and whatever else just lets the DNA run haywire. Mm. So you are carrying this stuff. You are carrying just like, I'm sure I gave my children a ton of lead because my lead levels are high. Um, but the aluminum is passing through and all of this. So yeah, we are having anaphylactic babies. We are having gender dysphoric babies who haven't received any vaccines because guess what? By now they don't even have to, we are birthing medically fragile children every day of the week. Now, um, something that I wanted to point out to you and you probably already know this. And we also touched on it last time is this October, 2019 article that ran in the daily mail. And the headline is hundreds of transgender youths who had gender reassignment surgery, which they hadn't, and they want to transition back. And so within this article is where I read for the first time that the epidemic is females identifying as males. Cause wouldn't you think it's 50, 50, but it's not yeah. 50, 50. So something's going on here and it could be social contagion, right? It could mm -hmm. be seduction. It could be something else, or it could be two, three, four, five things all at once. And I had my own blog readers coming at me saying, well, it can't be this MRC5 that US uses in their chickenpox vaccine, right? Because a lot of this, that's the thing. I mean, the chickenpox vaccine came on 1995. I mean, it was a huge bump. And so when you look, when you look at when did corporate America start embracing this? When did they start embracing LGB, you know, that ultimately became TQ and all of this? That is a huge bump in the United States. 
are these children who got this 1995 vaccine. And at first it was one vaccine and then it was a double dose of the vaccine, right? And so it's just building and it's building and it's building until finally at some point we're in this epidemic and we're like, gosh, how did we get here? But anyway, my readers were like, no, 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 it can't be MRC5 because the UK doesn't vaccinate for chickenpox, which is true. They don't vaccinate for chickenpox at all. However, in the vaccines that we were using that had that female WI38, the UK always used an MRC5, always did. So they never, that we don't, we just simply don't use the same vaccine. So like what's happening in the UK where the article is based that I read about this um, epidemic being primarily female identifying as male, they have long used these vaccines that are male DNA, right? And then a lot of them mm -hmm. were one dose. And then by the mid nineties, it became two doses. So it's just, it's just, and not everyone is complying with the two doses. And then they go and they sometimes capture older kids and they bring them back down and say, you're still in school. So you, even though you're not a kindergartner, we're going to go ahead and capture you with this second dose. So it's kind of all over the map, but they caught a lot of children who were school age with this second dose in this, you know, certain period of time. So somebody would have to piece it all together, this timeline of whose DNA is getting inject, injected into who and how many times in a mm. lifetime before you get to the mid nineties when we're double dosing MMR and we're double dosing a chickenpox vaccine here in the US and there's gotta be a tipping point. We can't do this forever and infinity with no consequences. And right. so I do think that this is the consequences right now. Okay. Someone really should really piece. I think you should be the one to piece it together. Robin. And, I don't, and I would be so hated, right? If I even did more than I've already done, like and no, you know yeah. this, you're setting totally. yourself up and I totally. can't say it enough. Everybody deserves the help that they need. Everybody deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. Everybody deserves to be loved, Absolutely. but they're not getting the help they need. And you know, this yeah. they, it's, it's either hormones and surgery that profit the medical cartel in pharma or it's nothing. And then once they get that, then they get nothing. They get no support. And there's just so much regret. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there is space being created. Even if you think like five years ago, it was totally taboo to talk about social contagion and internalized homophobia, you know, potentially fueling why you know, gay and bisexual youth were, you know, seeking after this, like, you know, fake sex change situation. Um, and I wonder, I want, I mean, I wonder if that's true, like, if it would be totally slammed, because I, I feel that people in the gender critical movement, most of the, I would say 99% of the people that I've spoken to and connected with in the gender critical movement are very pro vaccine, mm -hmm. at least through the pe people that I've spoken to, the mothers of the trans, and I'm not saying all of them, but I'm saying like 99% of the people that I've spoken to. And I would say probably a, a decent number of, of like people who subscribe to, to my channel, you know, really want to keep it within the realm or only explore within the realm of social constructs, psychology, like they don't want to go into what obviously what you've just, you know, talked about today. Um, but when you're in such an unpopular movement to begin with, 
like, I actually wonder if there is an opening there because on the one hand, these parents and people who, who question the trans, you know, narrative are generally the minority in their friend group, in their schools, in their community. So they know what it's like to be told that they're crazy and that they're bigots and they're hateful, just as people who question the safety and efficacy of vaccines are told that they're, you know, they're killers and they don't care about other people and they're selfish and all, all these narratives. So I think there might be a bridge here. I think for anyone who hasn't, you know, explored this and is listening this is an invitation to 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 go there, right? And I and I feel like I I really prided myself on my ability to give women permission or to demonstrate or to model curiosity around the mainstream narrative around transgenderism. So with that said, this is an invitation for anyone listening to explore, like give yourself permission to go down that rabbit hole. It doesn't mean you're going to agree with every single thing that, that we've talked about today, but, you know, I, I hope that there are some red flags going up for, you know, for the, the things you're not supposed to talk about, like, you know, just as how, you know, in the same way that people feel about the trans stuff, like that people are afraid to go there. They're afraid of what they're going to find. They're afraid of what it's going to mean for their relationships. I mean, the media has just done such a good job for the last 10, 11 years of beating the crap out of moms who speak up about vaccine injury that yeah. a whole generation grew up seeing that, right? So let's say you were... 20 years old in 2010 when this happened. And by the time you have a baby, when you're 30, you're completely indoctrinated to think that those moms are crazy. Those moms just follow Andrew Wakefield like it's a cult, you know, yada, yada, yada. And it's gotta be impossible. I mean, I would not be comfortable if someone came to me with something that I truly didn't believe in. It's like, it's like aliens, right? Do you believe in aliens? I did not believe in aliens. I don't want to believe in aliens. I almost broke up with my college boyfriend because he said something about aliens once, <laughs> how close-minded I was. And then I sat down and I watched several documentaries that included a lot of American military, right? A lot of uh, elected officials, and a lot of pilots and, and all this. And they're all saying the same thing. And I went from 100% not believing in aliens to holy shit, I cannot believe the people I've cut out of my life because they believe in aliens. It's not comfortable. Like you owe those people an apology, you know, that was just their position. I, and I judged them so harshly. So yeah. it is extremely uncomfortable. Um, there is a new study that came out a year ago that I didn't see. And I just pulled this up for you. Autism diagnosis by gender identity. So, and you know that Autism prevalence mm -hmm. is much higher in males than it is in females, all right? So cisgender males, autism is 7%. Cisgender females, autism is 4%. Gender diverse, autism is 24%. Now, why aren't we talking about this? No one is. Oh, this is something we didn't talk about last time. So once I realized this, which was, October, 2019, it shifted my empathy for transgender teenagers who want to compete in opposite sex sports, not so much females wanting to compete as males because I don't even know if that happens, but the males who want to compete as females 
it shifted in my heart because as a lawyer, I have represented college students with Asperger's and I have gone in there to advocate for these kids when it is grossly misunderstood. And when the prosecutor honestly told me to my face that these kids are just smarter than others and like maybe they have some sort of savant ability. And I'm just like, holy cow, you're prosecuting what is basically a child. I mean, this was a college student, but still very young because you think that he's a horrible person and that his diagnosis just means that he has some kind of like maybe piano playing skills or something. It's just so out of touch with what it means to have Asperger's. And so I hung out with my client. I interviewed the girl who was pressing charges against him. And I interviewed like a third buddy who was there. And so what happened is that there were two guys and one girl and they both had a crush on the girl. No one is very good at expressing their feelings for one another. And it just became this really awkward situation. Feelings were hurt. And one kid got behind the wheel of his car and he told the girl, I'm gonna kill you. And he floored it. He floored the gas pedal and headed towards this girl. She got out of the way, right? So he's arrested for this. And this is, you know, it's a felony. You can't make people think you're gonna kill them with your car. So I'm trying to advocate for this kid. Like he came to me through a judge because people knew my advocacy and they're just like, she's gonna know. She's gonna know how to help this, these people. And so I had to go and sit with this or stand in front of the judge because usually your client's not gonna speak to the judge. That's not gonna happen. But I had to embarrass this prosecutor because he's not dropping these charges. And so I granted the judge permission to speak directly to my client and I go ahead, tell him what happened. Within 15, 20 seconds, his story has gone completely off the rails. He's talking about helicopters. He's talking about surveillance happening. I mean, you would look at this kid and think he's a normal kid. He's not a normal kid. None of these kids can even tell left from right. That's how severely debilitated they are. They're in a special program in a community college where they get a lot more caretaking and a lot more supervision. And I just stood there and I let this kid show the judge what his reality is. And like, that was pretty much the end of it. I was able to come up with a deferred adjudication program for this kid. And he had to take an, a special made for him custom anger management course, something like that. And we got all his charges dismissed and we went ahead and expunged his record for him so that he's not walking around, you know, with felony charges on his record. So I know what it's like to interact with high functioning autistic Asperger people and they are severely debilitated. Now take everything I just said and apply it to teenage track stars in Connecticut who just want to run and they don't understand why they're ruining records for all of the girls, why they're taking away college scholarships, why they're ruining lives. They don't understand. And if you can see them in the way that you see my client, apply that to these kids. They don't know, they don't care, they're not concerned with it, that's outside of their purview. And you have a lot more sympathy because it's highly likely that those kids are on the spectrum, that these you know, Connecticut track stars are on the spectrum. And when you watch the interviews, they're so confused. They're like, I just wanna run. Why won't you let me run? And that's literally like the end point for them. That's the end all be all because they don't get it. They're not trying to hurt anyone. They just don't understand how they are hurting people. Yes, and the real question is why are the adults letting this happen like that, like, because the consequence is still, as you said, these girls lives are ruined. This girl is who was, you know, thought she was going to die in the car with this guy, you know, like 
like, what are the the consequences for her? I'm hyper-focused on the consequences on women and girls, which I know, I know you are as well. In addition to um, what you've just described of these like high functioning young guys, but the, the question I guess here is, okay, if they just want to run, where are the adults holding the line and saying like, I hear you, but you can't, you know, like yeah. the adults are missing. Why are these institutions, schools, uh, and courtrooms condoning these young boys to yeah. take these opportunities away from young I mean, women. It, it's probably different reasons, right? As a parent, you would do anything for your child. I try to be that parent when someone comes up to me and like, hey, your kid was being an asshole. I try to be like, I'm so sorry. Please tell me everything right now and I will handle it. I try not to just be that defensive parent because of course my kids make mistakes. Of course they do. But a lot of parents, you have to force yourself. You love this child so much, you know, that you would die for them. A lot of parents, they can't do that. They haven't practiced doing that. But, you know, the judge's reasons and the school's reasons, those are very different reasons than the parents' reasons. But also, what if the parents have a similar situation going on? What if they also have something that prevents them from empathizing? It's very possible. I mean, what was the reaction? Like, I, I mean, I, as, as you, you know, described that you, you know, of this young man who, you know, threatened to kill this girl in the car who, yeah. who didn't have like a criminal charge, but, you know, isn't some kind of like alternative program to, to get help to, I, I don't know what, but I mean, I, I guess I, I think about the girl and her family and to me, it doesn't necessarily even matter what the chemical makeup is if the consequence is the same whether he's maliciously trying to kill her or unintentionally yeah. trying to kill yeah. her yeah the outcome is the same yeah and a lot of it honestly is because these families had money there's no services for these children right to me i was a child until i was probably 30. so when i say children i'm not saying it because they have aspergers I don't think you're grown. And I don't think, and especially like having ethics until you're 25, like I won't hire a babysitter under the age of 25 because I knew how I was. So when I say children, it's not because of their condition. It's because that's how I feel about everybody. Mm. Um, they have money. There's no services for these kids. And so beyond the age of 18, and especially if they're not under the autism umbrella and all this, they're not getting any support. They're not getting any help. They don't have any like, physical assistance, you know, they're not going to classes, courses, therapies, they're not getting anything at all. And so these were wealthier families here who could afford this special program at this community college in Austin. And like, why in the world would you give this kid who can't tell a straight story, can't tell left from right, goes in for a, a judge and talks about helicopters surveying him. So why would you give him a car? That's right. a deadly weapon. Cars, vehicles are deadly weapons. Why would you give that kid a car? That's just crazy to me. So it's almost like worse for these families that have money because they're just like throwing these possessions. I'm always shocked when I hear that people are going to, my kid doesn't have autism and I don't want to give him a car. So what, what was the reaction from the fan, the girl and her family? How did they take the, you know, the verdict? She, she was cooperating with me. She was cooperating. So I had her family's permission to go meet with her. And I went to her apartment to go pick her up because we were going to go eat 
And uh, she's like, so where are we going to eat? And I'm like, where do you want to eat? And she wanted to eat at Taco Bell. So we were, I went to Taco Bell with her and she was like, just making sure you're going to pay for this. Like she turned to me and said that to me, like, that's the total lack of self-awareness. Like, of course I'm going to pay for it. But she was just really concerned about a Taco Bell meal and who was picking up the tab for it. And, um, and even like, I don't know if there was not GPS on phones at the time or something. And she's trying to tell me where to, where to go. And so she's in my passenger seat and it was a very friendly interaction. She wasn't a hostile witness and we're driving and I'm like, well, tell me where to turn. And I'm like, but is it left or right? And she's just struggling. She's like, it's going to be this way. That's how she does it because they can't orient left and right because left and right depends on which way you're facing. And so that's very confusing that it's not rooted like concrete left and right is not, this is always left. And this is always right. It depends on which way you're facing. And like, that does not compute at all. And so I'm dealing with this person. It was just so fascinating to me to learn how debilitated she is and that their third friend is. And my client was, and I did not myself realize the severity of the disability because it is not autism and autism is all I knew. Wait. So she, was also on the spectrum. All three of them. All three of them. Yes. And they're wow. at a club. They're at a club on Sixth Street. It was a club I actually used to go to in college. And they were there at like nine o'clock. <laughs> like at a time that no one is out on Sixth Street. They're like at a dance club as soon as it opens. Yes. And they're drinking. And there's like feelings involved and jealousy and a deadly weapon. So, so after the fact, did she feel like this guy, I mean, like who was pressing the charges? Like, I imagine it was, she was. her, right. She, well, so the, the charges are coming from the prosecutor's office. They can't press the charges unless they have a cooperating witness. Yeah. So she was the cooperating witness. Yes. And so what was her response after the verdict was announced? No, she was, she was cooperating with me to get the charges out. So first she's cooperating oh, she with the prosecutor to have him charged. And okay. then once I came in and I had permission to speak with her and all of that, like, did I do the right thing? I'm not claiming that I did. I did my job. My, I only represent one person. And so like, did I do the right thing by going in and talking to this girl who has Asperger's without her parents? I don't know. Maybe not. It's arguable that I didn't, but I was hired to protect the boy because he's the one who is going to be convicted of a felony in college when he's so severely disabled. It's just mm. wrong. The number of autistic and Asperger people in prison is mind boggling and they don't get any help. They don't get any services. They're just thrown in there and it's getting worse year by year. It's getting worse. And like, I just didn't want to be the lawyer that let something like that happen. So, but by the end she was cooperating, but it wasn't like she was enthusiastic. She was just like, I don't care either way. She'd known him for a long time. Um, I think that was the end of it. I don't think that they were going to like mm. date or anything like that, but she cooperated in getting the charges dropped. So like the radical feminist analysis, you know, part of me is saying like, you know, you defended the boy, the man, you know, like, what about this girl who like yeah. is potentially living in fear of this guy, like coming to find her or like threaten her other ways? Like she has to sleep every night knowing that this guy like this guy suffered no consequences and yeah. is just getting like basically rehabilitation, which but I'm not I saying did, he doesn't I, need. I did ask him to write her a letter and um, I think they went on a walk and I think he brought her flowers. And so he apologized and he took responsibility 
And it wasn't like a romantic thing. It was just to say, I'm sorry. And she heard him and she accepted the apology. At the time, that seemed to be enough for her. In my eyes, it seemed to be enough. So in this case, you feel like it, it, it wasn't, this wasn't a result of like, this wasn't such a black and white issue in that this is male violence being enacted on women. But like, and then the other part of me is like, okay, well, women with, with Asperger's or who are on the spectrum don't pull this kind of shit on men. So like, what's the element of like testosterone? Like, yeah, definitely. Women barely do violent crimes at all. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. This is like, this is challenging my, my typical response to like a situation. You have the same physique and you have the same hormones and you have the same feelings, but you have a different brain that's not processing it in a rational way. Right. There has to be programs for this because this is where we are. This is where we brought ourselves at this point. We may as well accept it and we may as well deal with it. People sure aren't doing anything to try to prevent it. So it's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And there mm-hmm. has to be, just like you see, there's like sensory Santa, right? And, or this like Marxist, Marxist meeting that happened a couple of years ago, that video where this guy got up and was leading the meeting, was talking about like his auditory sensitivities and how people are just, you know, too much chatter and he's making, he's getting uncomfortable and all. There's going to be parallel societies like that. Yeah. 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 Okay. So this is, this is like the nuanced conversation that that's really fascinating. And, and I know that you know, like we could take um, like serial killers or, you know, mass shooters. And, and this is something that Kelly Brogan talked about where, you know, she's saying like no one's looking at the number of pharmaceutical drugs that these guys were on when they were mass shooters. Again, now this doesn't mean women oh, yeah. who were on the same number of drugs would do the kinds of things that men do, but should simply say that this is like that even when we're looking at male violence. So like I would consider like what the, the case that you described, like I would categorize that like, okay, this guy had obviously had a disability, but like my at first glance, I would say, oh, this is a, this is just a, like a typical case of uh, male violence, uh, a man threatening a a young woman. But I I think the part that you're bringing up without looking at his makeup, which in this case was a highly functioning, you know, would you call him autistic Asperger's? Yeah, I would say Asperger. Yeah, Asperger. Without looking at that element, we're we're doing a disservice to future to, to women who are future victims, and you know. And so I, I guess like the same that you, you could do, draw a parallel with what Kelly Brogan talks about, which is like, okay, if we want to prevent this kind of like atrocity, these atrocities from happening, then we have to look at the the pharmaceutical companies, you know, role in all of this in the case of mass shooters, right? This isn't just yeah. a gun issue oh, yeah. or a male violence issue. Kelly might've gotten that from me. I wrote about that in 2017 or 2018. And it was a big blog where mm. I do think that the root of mass violence is pharmaceutical drugs, because when you go in, mm. right, all of the mass shooters are tracked and their histories are written about extensively because there's people who are just fascinated by these kinds of people and they delve into their lives and all of that. They are all all of them on pharmaceutical drugs. So they're on the antidepressants, antipsychotics, and ADHD meds, every single one of them. Yeah. It's very interesting. And something else super interesting and super controversial that <laughs> I don't think I'm cancelable at this point. I'm too fringe, but is that school shooters are always gay. Wow. They're always gay. Go back to Columbine. Like 
those boys, the reason they shot them up is because their classmates were making fun of them for being gay. And no one talks about like, were they gay? Were they not really gay? The whole school thought they were gay. Okay, but the whole school could think they were gay they and they could not be gay. gay. Gay gay also used to be a synonym for like calling someone stupid. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, no, this was like, what, 1999? No, no, no. You, you can't discount what kids know about other kids. That's true. Columbine High School knew that Dylan and sorry, I don't remember the other shooter's name, were gay, right? And you look at what happened in Highlands Ranch a couple years ago in Colorado. The... There was a, it was the first transgender shooter. Do you remember this? That shooting yes. was wiped off the face of the earth and the media oh so incredibly fast once they realized one of the shooters was transgender. Do you remember? It's 2017. It was at a STEM high school, juvenile female. Oh, yep. Oh, All yeah. right. So the perpetrator, Alec McKinney, a transgender boy who was listed on the court docket as Maya Elizabeth McKinney. Oh my gosh. Well, it's very interesting because girls are almost never school shooters. It's all very interesting. I don't know what to make of it. I don't, but Adam Lanza from Sandy Hook was gay and a pedophile. And I can understand why no one talks about this, right? Because there's enough gay hate and they don't want anything else thrown at them, blah, blah, blah. But when you have gay kids who are completely unsupported or ostracized from their school, which is now maybe becoming a transgender issue, shit happens when kids have access to weapons, they're on um, antipsychotic, antidepressant, ADHD, whatever. I mean, tell me what transgender person is not honestly on antidepressants. I mean, they're handed right. out like candy. Yeah. So it's again, multifactorial. Wow. Oh my gosh. These are all my unpopular opinions. You're getting them all from me today. But this, the second shooter at Highlands Ranch, the last name is Erickson. Devin was the purple haired kid. Okay, the purple haired kid is gay. Kind of seemed like tag along, like maybe the other guy was the main influence in this Maya. Yeah, so Devin with the purple hair is gay. And then um, Maya, who identified as Alec, is transgender. Yes. Mm. And I guarantee you antidepressants play a role in this. Yeah. And also, like, was she on hormones? Was she taking testosterone? What did it do to her? So some of the, the detransitioned women that I've spoken to mentioned, yeah, like feeling more violent, more erratic, like wanting to take more risks, you know, that was all testosterone. So that, that also makes sense. That would make sense why she would be doing things outside of her norm because she's literally on drugs. This idea that like drugs would like on the one hand, drugs are bad for kids and they should never do them. And on the other hand, it's the path to their authentic self. I mean, it is literally bonkers. It, it makes no sense. So, yeah, I could I can imagine that there I mean, there's been documented like higher instances of violence, erratic behavior, which, again, like if you're talking about back to, you know, teens driving cars, you have a teen driving a car who's on their first week of testosterone. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I've had to take prednisone in my life several times and I wanted to murder people with my bare hands. I went to a concert once on prednisone. It was awful to be in that many people. I just wow. I was angry to my core being on testosterone. Well, not, I mean, sorry, I don't know how you would classify prednisone, but it was a steroid. 
I was, yeah, I was on, I went into anaphylactic shock when I was like 20. Uh, and I was on prednisone for six weeks. I don't remember wanting to kill people, but I remember just feeling terrible. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought of it as a, so you would categorize prednisone as a testosterone. So is prednisone related to testosterone? Man-made versions of testosterone. That's what WebMD says. Wow. If my parents were, I would hope if my parents were told when I was 20 that that I was getting put on testosterone, they'd they'd pause. But when it's talked about as like a a way to help with your allergies. Yeah. Yeah. My son was on it after anaphylaxis and he was Mm -hmm. three. He was so jerk. He was such, he was on it for like, I think you do, let's say five pills the first day. Right. And then four, three, two, one. Right. So let's say he was on it five days. It was a nightmare and he was a toddler. It was so bad. He's oh like, gosh. get away from me. <laughs> oh, poor thing. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, we didn't last time, you know, we spoke, I, I, I didn't ask and I, and I want to ask, how is your son doing now all these years later? He's doing pretty good. We, so he went on, I mean, Obviously my number one was healing him from as many allergies as possible. I don't like it when people say someone outgrew something. Well, they distanced themselves between the last time you loaded them up Mm. with vaccinations and that's not really outgrowing it. That's healing from it. So we stopped vaccinating when he was two months old. And then at 16 months, he went on an all organic paleo primal diet. So he didn't eat another grain until he was like in kindergarten it was just very easy to keep it away from him. So that was a ton of healing for his gut. And, um, then we did traditional Chinese medicine with a Chinese, a traditional Chinese practitioner who was also a pediatric allergist at Mount Sinai in New York. So he got into her private practice program. We did that for a while. Um, we did see a lot of skin healing with that. And then we've done some mild chelating. We've done TRS. We've done Allergy Research Group has got this really great probiotic that's like a tri-blend of different lactobacilli. And it is all three of them that are in there are so good for intestinal healing and skin healing. So we've done all of that. We lived overseas. And so when we were in Bali, he went to energy healers. Did I tell you this last time? I think you mentioned this. Yeah. Yeah. So so like the concierge called and, and is like begging on my behalf. And so they said, okay, bring him in. They wouldn't even take my money or anything. Right, um, right. And so, yeah, his score, I want to say it was like a 39 or a 41, anything over a 0.1 is a peanut allergy. And his score was a 39 or a 41 or a 45. I don't remember. It was, it, to me, it was high, but there's parents who have kids that are literally off the chart. They're above hundred. They don't know what their number is. Um, and we got it down, I think to a 16, which is amazing. Anything under 14, you have a chance of it not being an anaphylactic response. I haven't had him tested in a couple of years. There is a healer here who is like a trauma and energy. She has a wait list and um, she's part of the movements and all of that. So that's great. Like she watches my show on children's health events and stuff. Um, I held a protest the other day and she came. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So it'll be really, really good to have a therapist who, cause she is also mm. like a licensed therapist, but she does this other work. It'll just be so good to be in her practice. She called me and she was like, Hey, if you want to be friends, because therapists can't be friends with their clients. And like, she wants to be my friend. 
if you want to be friends, then we could do this other thing. And I could just volunteer my services for your son. Mm. But like, I was wanting to see her for myself. Like, I really just want a good therapist. I miss having a therapist. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had to tell this lady, I didn't want to be her friend. Because <laughs> you wanted to keep her as a therapist. That's I so haven't fun. started with her yet. I'm on her wait list. And like, and I've, I've looked so long for a spiritual therapist. Like once you have a spiritual therapist, you don't want any other kind of therapist. You want someone who is going to talk to you in these spiritual, you know, universal terms. And like, I'm waiting for her. I'm waiting for a spot for me and I'm waiting for a spot for my son. And no, I don't want off your list. And we can talk about being friends when we're all done here. But until then, I mean, let's be honest, I have enough friends. Like I just was looking for a really good therapist. So I had to tell her that I would rather stay on her list. She was really sweet. So we're going to do that. Um, Amazing. He has outgrown so many things. And then some things that he didn't outgrow, like he had a really severe cat allergy. If he touched a cat and touched his face, his eyes would swell shut and stuff Mm -hmm. like it was awful. Uh, When we lived overseas, we actually ended up getting him a cat and the cat was supposed to be an outdoor cat. And she started coming in the house for like a minute and he's blowing up. And then a week later, she'd come in for five minutes, right? And like, she's coming in every day. You can't stop this cat from coming in. And then eventually you get to the point where he, he can have the cat for an hour, but he's not supposed to touch the cat. But of course, if you don't touch a cat, that cat comes and lays on your lap. Like the cat's like, that's my person right there. The one that's ignoring me. So he became the cat's favorite. She's like laying on him. I would say it was four months of this and his cat allergy. He became completely tolerant to her and not just her, like all cats. He can now take her and just bury his face in her. And uh, so when we left, we left India. We brought that cat home with us. So she lives with us now. That's so sweet. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. That's so leaps and bounds. Wow. Yeah. And a testament to your dedication and work and fighting for him so many times, overcoming so many obstacles. His role in the world and his role in my life and my role in his and these agreements that our souls have to have in order for us to be in this. Because even when he was like eight or nine and I'm talking to him, And I'm telling him how many lives this child has saved. Yes, it's through me and through my experience and through my writing that I have shared with the world. But this kid has saved lives. And he would say, no, mommy, it's not me. It's you. And I'm like, no, it's you because you agreed to be here. You agreed to be my kid. You knew like your soul had to know that I'm Mm going to fuck it up and Mm -hmm. I'm going to vaccinate you and you're going to get super sick. Right. And I was a scientist and I'm a lawyer and I'm just not the kind of mom that you mess with. I don't like being lied to. I don't like being misled. And I sure don't like having to wake up and realize everything I believed in is a lie. And that's what happened to me. And it was not gradual. It was literally overnight. This happened and I began researching and I woke up immediately. And then I started bringing everyone in with me. And I researched and I learned for several years. And when I began speaking, it was 2014, that many years in between 2009 and 2014, I was just learning. And when I began speaking, I knew so much and I began writing and I had this way that I can write and you're, you're bawling your eyes out. You can't get out of your car and go to the office because you began reading an article that I wrote and people are reading about my son and what we go through. And people think a peanut allergy is no big deal. That kid has 45 minutes to live on any given day if he eats a piece of food that did not come from my home. It is no small thing. So once I began writing and all of that, and I began you know, writing about the DTAP scream and our experience, and it ran in magazines. It actually just re-ran in a magazine a few months ago. I walked into my chiropractor's office and there's the magazine. And I pick it up and I open it. And there's a photo of my daughter as a toddler holding a nebulizer to my son's face. 
for him to breathe. That's the photo. And my children are like processing because that looks like them as babies. Like, why are they in this magazine at the chiropractor's office? That stuff reaches people. That's what the pharmaceutical movement can't have on us. That's why they want us silenced, deplatformed, and isolated because experiences like the experiences that I've had with him, when it comes to someone who's got a grasp on articulation like I do and a writing ability to boot, people are going to listen to what Mm -hmm. happened. And thousands and thousands and thousands of people have listened to what happened to my son and they have changed their ways based on his sacrifice. And it is his sacrifice. So, I mean, I mean, it's just amazing and beautiful and it helps so much with the guilt because the guilt is just tremendous. But when you mm. look at it, like your soul said yes to being here, to being my child, to being hurt and to accept my care. Like I'm going to cry just thinking about it, but he had to say yes. Yeah. He wouldn't be here if he didn't say yes. Yeah. This is the conception contract. Yep. Yep. Wow. Well, I know this is going to spark a lot of women's hearts and parents' hearts. And where can women go to either contact you or read your writing, follow your show? Where can yeah, we point yeah. women? Uh, anybody can email me at hello, Robbie Rose at protonmail.com. So that's hello. And then Robbie is R-O-B-B-I-E. And then R-O-S-E at protonmail.com. And then um, I have a new show where it's seven to nine minutes of comedy each week on a new platform called CHDTV. This is an offshoot of Children's Health Defense. And so you can get there by going to Children's Health Defense and going to the live section or just go to chd.tv. And my show is called The Noisy Minority Report. Thank you so much, Robbie, for all of your time and research. And yeah, just I'm so grateful to know you. And I will link all of your. Yes, I've got in the show notes. I will email them to you so that you can share them out. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you again. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support my work, Please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To stay in the loop for my latest coaching programs, hypnosis sessions, free resource guides, and more, follow me on Instagram at whosebodyisit, and visit my website, whosebodyisit.com.